Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in Africa Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Jacob Ivey, one of the hosts of this channel. Uh, today, we'll be talking to Hilary Matfess about her book, Women and the War on Boko Haram, Wives, Weapons, Witnesses, just recently published by Zed Books in 2017. Hilary Matfess is a research analyst, a PhD candidate at Yale University in the Political Science Department, and a contributor to the Nigeria Social Violence Project, the John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Her new book attempts to convey the myriad ways in which women have shaped the development and course of the Boko Haram insurgency. Hilary Matfess, Welcome. Thanks. So happy to be here virtually and uh, and on this call. <laughs> Hilary, could you tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to the field of African studies? Sure. So I did my undergraduate degree at the Johns Hopkins University. Uh, and when I was registering for classes uh, as a 17-year-old, uh, I thought that Swahili looked really cool. And so I signed up to take a Swahili language course. Um, and I had previously done Model UN and had an interest in global affairs. Uh, but it was in learning Swahili that I really got an interest in doing field work in sub-Saharan Africa. And so as an undergraduate, I, I took two trips to Tanzania to do some field research there. Um, and then I was admitted as part of the five-year BAMA program. Um, to Johns Hopkins SICE, the School of Advanced International Studies. Um, and while I was there, I had the opportunity to also do field work in Rwanda, Ethiopia, and Nigeria, uh, and really fell in love with the, the experience of doing field work and working in sub-Saharan Africa, um, really on a diversity of issues. In um, Tanzania, I was working on neoliberalism and environmental regulations uh, in uh, Rwanda and Ethiopia, I was looking at developmental authoritarianism. And in Nigeria, uh, I had worked, as you mentioned, with the Nigeria Social Violence Research Project, which was an effort to catalog all of the instances of lethal non-criminal violence in Nigeria from uh, 1999, or the, the transition to democracy under the Fourth Republic, to present day. Um, and, you know, obviously sort of the, the big story emerging out of this era is the rise of Boko Haram. Mm-hmm. And so luckily, uh, the faculty, particularly uh, Dr. Peter Lewis at SICE, was really supportive of me as I started to do field work there and really on the ground trying to understand beyond the numbers of, the, of people killed and the locations where they were killed by this group trying to understand how Boko Haram came to be and how it became so lethal. Um, So it's been, you know, a a varied and really interesting experience on the continent. And along the way, I've been really fortunate to have mentors who work uh, on a variety of issues in a number of different countries. Kim Dion, who I'm sure you know through the Monkey Mm -hmm. Cage blog and her own really fantastic work, including a new book called Doomed Interventions um, on uh, AIDS activism in Sub-Saharan Africa. And Stephanie Burchard, who does work on um, electoral violence specifically 
in Kenya, Mary Berry, who does female political representation in Rwanda, Bosnia as well. And of course, uh, Peter Lois at SICE, who really opened up a number of doors for me and got me interested in working in Nigeria. Oh, fantastic. And that, that sounds like a, that sort of leads into my, my next question. And it's fairly obvious with that, uh, with, with that type of pedigree associated with it. So then how did you come to write this uh, incredibly insightful book on women in Boko Haram? Why, why women in, in particular? What, what was the catalyst for that front? So it's it's actually really funny that I've ended up working in gender studies um, because one of my first experiences when I was in uh, my first graduate program at SAIS getting my MA, I had a professor approach me and sort of good-naturedly uh, at a, a reception or something say like, oh, you're going to work on women, right? And I bristled and I was like, why would you assume that? Um, you know, just because I'm a woman, like I'm an economist um, because I was getting a master's in international economics. Um, I came to find out he asked because he was doing a, a research project on women. But I really at first resented, resisted this idea of sort of a, a pink ghetto is right. referred to a lot in, in journalism and how women get shunted into only studying, you know, women's issues and you don't really see men going into this. Um, so I, I never really thought that gender would be the focus of my research uh, up until I started researching gender and realized exactly how fascinating it is. Mm-hmm. Another reason that I was able to do this work is just in uh, the post-conflict contexts, um, Nigeria is not quite post-conflict, but in a number of the the conflict contexts in which I was conducting research, there was just simply a demographic donut. Um, I was working for a number of the interviews in IDP camps, and when you would walk into these IDP camps, you wouldn't really see able-bodied young men. What you would see would be old men, young boys, and then women of all ages, um, and so when I was conducting interviews, those who had experienced the conflict and borne the brunt of it that I was able to interact with were women. And then I was able to leverage my identity as a woman in order to cultivate trust amongst these women. Um, so it's really fascinating the ways in which gender identity um, can just be a, a sort of a means of bonding with people with whom you have very little else in common. Um, And one of the really striking things when I was interviewing women who had joined Boko Haram voluntarily and who remained loyal to the sect, um, who were being held in a a special camp called Safe House um, on the governor of Borno State's um, government house compound, was just how much like the other teenage girls that I've interacted with uh, they were. And so, you know, I would sit around with these girls for a couple of days and I would just ask them, you know, what were their lives like? You know, how, tell me about your wedding. Um, and there would be, you know, we'd speak for hours and a lot of times they would sort of like giggle and talk about boys in very similar ways to the way that me and my girlfriends giggle and talk about boys. There's uh, a normality associated with it, essentially. Right. And uh, I remember, you know, the girls would ask me how old I was. Um, and I was, uh, I was 24, I think, at the time that I was doing these interviews. And one of the girls was also 24 and she, you know, looked at me and she smiled. Um, and she said, their translator, like, Oh, we're the same age. You're my sister. And there was just this sort of immediate bonding. 
Um, the girls uh, wanted to, well, I showed them pictures of my apartment in Washington, D.C., which is where I lived at the time. And they laughed at me and told me I needed to get a richer husband and that my apartment was too small and that they wouldn't live there, which to hear that from someone living in an IDP camp is is funny in a really dark way. Um, And yeah, it it really was. Um, And I was very defensive of my tiny little apartment. Um, And so I, I said, you know, okay, so how do I get a richer husband? And the girls looked at me and they're like, well, you need to start wearing makeup and you need to fix your hair and we'll do henna on you and you need to pierce your ears. Um, which was just really fascinating. And it, it really hammered home to me that, you know, these, these were not dumb or vapid girls. They were just women in a system that only really allowed them to advance their interests or to express ambition through who they married. You know, one of, kind of the biggest predictors of how easy or difficult these women's lives would be, would be the status of their husband. Right. And so a lot of times uh, the women I spoke to in the, the governor's camp, those who joined voluntarily would say things about how they, they joined in large part because of their ability to select their husband amongst Boko Haram members, um, as Aisha, who, who married the Amir, told me. Um, and also because the group offered them access to education. Um, so while a number of people in the West, and particularly um, those who kind of hew to the government line, uh, consider Boko Haram's uh, quote-unquote education to be uh, propaganda and brainwashing, a lot of the people that I spoke to, both who joined voluntarily and those who were abducted, would say things like, um, you know, Boko Haram uh, provides daily Quranic education. And you would ask right. them, like, what, what's the difference between the Quranic education in the group and outside of it? And even those who, who really rejected the sect would say it was pretty similar, you know, a few differences. And then they'd outline you know, some of the differentiating features of Boko Haram that have come to be really well known. Obviously, the, the rejection of Western education, the rejection of democratic institutions, um, the rejection of those who uh, work with the Nigerian government. Um, and then the women also told me that they joined of those who joined voluntarily. And I, I do want to be clear, the majority of women that I spoke to who had been involved with the group were abducted into the group. Um, but I don't want to rob women who joined voluntarily of their autonomy because there certainly are those who join voluntarily. Um, right. but, yes. but they also talked about um, having the bride price paid directly to them, which was a, a really interesting point um, because bride price is a necessary part of getting married in, uh, in Nigeria and particularly um, uh, amongst these women, but bride price is often paid to the woman's father. And so right. in speaking to these women and then also those who lived um, near Ibn Tamiya Mosque, which was Muhammad Yusuf, the founder of Boko Haram's kind of first um, splinter mosque in Maiduguri, they reported that in the early years of the insurgency, Boko Haram would arrange these low-cost marriages between uh, male and female followers. And the way that Yusuf got women to agree to accepting a lower bride price, it's having it paid directly to her. And so not only did women get this bride price, but uh, it was also justified through um, 
interpretation of the Quran, which said that bride price should be paid to women. So you get sort of this moral superiority in addition to, you know, the tangible material benefit. Right. Um, and, and along those lines, I, and, and this, uh, as a historian of 19th century Africa, I'd be remiss not to ask this. Um, I was wondering, how do you think the colonial and post-colonial legacy has, has impacted this current situation in 21st century Nigeria? Um, specifically, I'm thinking at the divisions that exist between the North and the South, the uh, Christians and Muslim areas, and that's really been cementing itself in the Nigerian government systems over the last several decades, uh, particularly since the creation of the Fourth Republic in 1999. Um, most notably, uh, dealing with what, what we were discussing, you, you write at length about the debates over uh, Sharia law. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that and those those internal debates that exist uh, that you examine? Sure. So, sorry, let me clarify the internal debates within Nigeria over Sharia law. Right. So for those who haven't uh, immersed themselves in the, the debates over Sharia law, um, in 1999, when Nigeria transitioned back to democracy and entered its fourth republic, so you got a contentious debate between various factions uh, within Islam in the region about what Sharia should look like in implementation. And so within Northeast Nigeria, you have divisions between the Sufis who um, are organized into these powerful brotherhoods where you have the Qadariyas, the Tijaniyas, in particular exercise a lot of authority. But these are also brotherhoods that have often blended uh, local traditions with Islam um, in, as part of the, the conversion process. Um, and then you had kind of more purist reformist movements, most notably uh, the Anazala in northeastern Nigeria, who condemned this sort of innovation. Uh, and it was within uh, the Yanazala movement that Muhammad Yusuf, who would come to be the founder of Boko Haram, uh, eventually attached himself to. Um, and so he, after experimenting, <laughs> youthful experimentation uh, with different uh, sects within Islam, Muhammad Yusuf was brought under the tutelage of uh, Jafar Adams, um, who was a, a very popular rising Salafi preacher uh, within the Azal movement. And then Yusuf eventually had a falling out um, between uh, his patrons who had connections to the state um, and helped shape the implementation of Sharia in Borno State. Uh, in large part because he saw the implementation of Sharia law as being uh, inadequate and insufficiently um, Islamic. And so Yusuf began kind of railing against democracy, the Nigerian state, these corrupting Western influences. Um, and while Adam and, and the broader kind of Salafist community tolerated that for a while. Eventually, it did lead uh, to a splintering between the groups and Yusuf establishing his own Ibn Tamiya Mosque uh, around 2002 in Maiduguri and developing his own set of followers, um, uh, both in Maiduguri and traveling throughout the state um, and the northeastern region more broadly, um, uh, preaching to, to local populations, not just kind of the the quote-unquote, traditional uh, Salafi tenants, but also his particular interpretations in which um, in the Nigerian state and its practice of democracy was condemned. 
And, and it seems like this this condemnation towards the West, but but not only the West, but sort of the democratic systems that existed in Nigeria seems to be that primary point of attack. And then you talk about sort of the role of women in, in this nature of attack. And in fact, you make the point that uh, violence has been gendered uh, during this conflict. And you consistently juxtapose the idea of wives and weapons with, with Boko Haram. And obviously, it's one of the key components of your title. Um, I was wondering, how have women participated in this violence? And what role, again, does religion play in both the presentation of these women as tools of violence and also as, as victims of violence in this particular conflict? Yeah, so one of my larger gripes about a lot of conflict studies is that it overlooks women's participation because it may not fall into the the really narrow categories of combatant that we have established. Um, And so there's really great work by uh, folks like Sarah Parkinson that have documented the ways in which women in armed groups Uh, and rebel movements play really integral roles in the logistics um, and the the domestic kind of household labor that allow these groups to function. Um, And so certainly in Boko Haram, the main contribution of the women within their ranks is uh, their role in maintaining domestic order in the camps and then in the the specific households. Um, But there are sort of nascent reports of women being used as, uh, quote-unquote, traditional combatants. Um, I would hear from vigilante members and uh, soldiers sort of these apocryphal tales of women in burqas with AK-47s. I think that those instances are are likely very rare, um, in large part because Boko Haram practices purda or wife seclusion. Um, but certainly, uh, I do think it's possible that women have taken up arms. Um, certainly, women were often responsible for maintaining order in the camps. Um, so when men would leave to go fight. Many uh, people reported that uh, a certain class of wives would be responsible for making sure that everything in the camps was still functioning well, that orders were still being followed, that uh, none of the abductees escaped. Um, But certainly the most visible manifestation of women as weapons in Boko Haram is the use of women and girls as suicide bombers. Right. So our data set found that between April 11, uh, 2011 and uh, June 30th, 2017, Boko Haram uh, used um, 434 suicide bombers in total, and at least 56% of that number were identified as women. Um And it's certainly possible that even more women were used, but were not identified as women in the reporting uh, because this all relied on newspapers. Um, And that's really an unprecedented use of female suicide bombers. Um, According to work done by, I believe it's Mia Bloom, the previous quote unquote record holder for the use of female suicide bombers was the Tamil Tigers. And they used uh, roughly 40 over the course of a decade. So to see such a quick acceleration in the use of female suicide bombers um, in such a short span of time is actually really breathtaking. Um, And and one of the more troubling characteristics of this is the the really significant proportion of these female suicide bombers who are underage. 
Um, and so we were able to catalog uh, a number of instances in which uh, the suicide bomber would be identified as a child or they would give an approximate age. Um, and, you know, being on the ground in Borno State and Adamawa State, you know, I saw um, a number of billboards warning families, you know, don't give your children to terrorism and depicting, you know, a, a girl child in a suicide vest, grim- suicide vest grimacing as she pressed a de- detonation button in a market. Um, and so there is really a pervasive sense of fear um, surround and, and mistrust of women and girls um, that previously wasn't present. Um, it's actually really yeah, and and I wanted to and I wanted to ask a, a bit more about that because so much of the public um, and, and media presentation of Boko Haram and the women involved in in, in the group, most notably the, the now famous Chibok schoolgirls, uh, you know, these women are presented as faceless actors. Um, however, you're book really emphasizes the importance of women and the driving motivations and sociological and cultural factors that help to explain the internal dynamics of insurgency. So I'd like to ask, what role does perception play in both the uh, Nigerian and international view of the situation? You know, how these girls become a symbol of this crisis, both in Nigeria and across the globe? Yeah. So I wrote previously a piece about the, the catch 22 of the bring back our girls movement. Uh, and while I certainly don't want to malign any of the activism surrounding the plight of women who are abducted by Boko Haram uh, or to minimize the suffering of the families in Chibok, I, I often feel that this sort of mobilization is really counterproductive. One of the, the most striking things that we found in our reporting for uh, CTC was that Prior to um, the Bring Back Our Girls movement and the Chibok abductions, Boko Haram did not use a female, uh, a single female suicide bomber. So it was only after this sort of international activism around the issue of women and girls that Boko Haram, it, it looks like, saw the sort of attention that they could garner by using women's bodies to send a, a a message, um, and then really capitalized on that. Um, more broadly, you know, we've seen what happens when following a conflict, women are thought of as merely victims. Um, and it means that they're marginalized when it comes down to the process of, um, demobilizing disarmament and uh, disarming and reintegrating, uh, those who were involved in a conflict into society. And so if we continue to have this perception of women in northeastern Nigeria merely as victims of Boko Haram, then their needs for those who were involved with the conflict will likely not be met. You know, we're really minimizing women's experiences within the insurgency and then also sort of gliding past all of the sorts of structural violence um, against women and girls in the region that motivated them to either actively support the insurgency or tacitly support it. Um, and that means, you know, in, in overlooking all of those structural drivers of violence, it also means that in the longer term process of peace, it's unlikely that these will be addressed. There's a lot of really great academic work that we have now linking um, the position of women in society to the stability of that that nation. Uh, And yet I haven't seen 
genuine women's empowerment undertaken as a as a foreign policy objective both by the United States and by a number of other kind of Western donor countries. Um, and I think part of that is because we still often portray women uh, as victims of conflict rather than individuals with agency who can either prolong a conflict, propel a conflict, or help draw it to a close and, and build a sustainable future. Yeah, and, and and in one of your chapters, you 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 dig into this in much more detail with this, uh, I think, incredibly powerful question of rescue to what uh, you say displacement, vulnerability, and sort of the dark side of heroism. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. You you you've you've teased us a bit with it, sort of your 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 uh, comments about the international perceptions of of these women. But I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about sort of this dark side of heroism when you ask that question of rescue from what? Yeah. So I have a Google News alert set for Boko Haram. So every day I kind of scan through what the news of Boko Haram was that day. And it never fails to to kind of raise my hackles when I see these reports that, you know, the Nigerian military rescued 400 women from Boko Haram today or 50 women or whatever number it is that day. And once you've seen the situation of these women in IDP camps, it's really infuriating to to hear that sort of kind of self-congratulatory narrative about these women being rescued because the situation in camps is absolutely dire. A number of, um, IDPs have actually engaged in protests in these camps, uh, decrying the lack of food. Um, and then we're getting even more reports now um, that camp officials, both um, members of the security sector, um, members of the state emergency management agency, members of um, local vigilante groups, are engaging in sexual violence against these women and girls. Um, and when you talk to them, many of them can't access the passes um, that are necessary to leave these IDP camps in order to, you know, help supplement the inadequate food that they're given in order to reintegrate into communities, in order to, to help rebuild their lives having been displaced. Um, and the situation in the IDP camps is so dire that a number of women that I spoke to who were living in informal settlements said that they left or avoided the IDP camps because they wanted to avoid the abuse um, and that they were willing to to sacrifice sort of the regularity, if inadequate, um, nature of the, the provision of food and, and some health services for this this more sort of hard scrabble, um, more precarious existence outside of the camps in informal displacement camps because of the level of abuse that they would suffer in IDP camps. Um, and, and unfortunately, you know, a lot of, um, uh, sorry, uh, a lot of these abuses are, are met with just impunity. There's uh, very rarely anyone held accountable um, uh, for these abuses. And women were oftentimes afraid to report their abusers. Um, so Dion Cersei just published an amazing piece um, in the New York Times about the regularity with which security sector officials um, would pick girls in the IDP camps to, you know, quote, uh, come cook for them, uh, and they would rape these girls. Um, and so it's it's very frustrating that a lot of times the international community sees, um, quote-unquote, rescuing these girls from Boko Haram as being the end of the story, when really it's it's 
just the beginning. Um, and I, I also kind of consistently ask myself the question of like, uh, okay, security for whom? Stability for whom? Peace for whom? Because um, you'll hear a lot of people or organizations or government officials talking about the need for security, stability, and peace. Um, even though we know that in a number of conflict contexts, um, it's in the post-conflict, quote-unquote post-conflict era that we see a spike in rates of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, sexual violence against women and girls. And so if the insecurity that women face um, in the post-conflict period doesn't diminish, it's, it's merely at the hands of a different actor, it, you know, I'm forced to ask myself, like, it, it's peace for whom? Um, and I think it's clear. I think we need to sort of reconceptualize what we mean when we say peace, security, stability, and start prioritizing a more holistic account of human security. And, and again, this, the element of perception is, is such an incredibly powerful force on that front because it's uh, like – like you mentioned, I, I too see the the news reports of, of the rescues, and and, and there's a, a positivity associated with it. But then, when you dig deeper into it, it's the the situation on the ground does not necessarily seem to be improving itself on that front. Um, along those lines, and, and sort of just talking about the, the wider context associated with uh, Nigeria as a whole, uh, what impact do you see that the recent election had on the situation, and how has it uh, changed or not changed as a result of uh, uh, the recent uh, political change, uh, the political turmoil or uh, um, insecurity that we're seeing within the Nigerian political system. Sure. So, President Buhari really campaigned on a security platform. Um, he has a reputation as a military man, anti-corruption, um, and certainly after President Buhari took office, we did see kind of a a more earnest undertaking of kinetic military action against Boko Haram. That being said, kinetic military action cannot be the end of this insurgency. Um, and we're seeing that now as we're, uh, there's, you know, been an uptick in attacks that I've been reading about recently, uh, Boko Haram reclaiming areas that were previously secured. Um, I believe I saw this morning, a female suicide bomber attacking an IDP camp in Polka. Um, the the government, particularly under President Buhari, has had this really unfortunate habit of declaring that Boko Haram is technically defeated. It's defeated. It's on its last heels. Um, and, you know, Boko Haram has been on its last legs for a while now, uh, to the point where I wonder, how many legs does Boko Haram have? Like, is it a centipede? How many times do we have to hear that it's almost defeated um, before there's, you know, a, a tangible sense of uh, the insurgency being dwindling. Um, one of the more frustrating things um, that I've witnessed um, is particularly amongst American policymakers is a sense that Boko Haram is necessarily interested um, in territorial control. Uh, and so you'll hear, you know, like, well, you know, the, the military dislodged Boko Haram from such and such place. Um, and, you know, Boko Haram's tactics and, and potentially objectives have, have undergone a number of radical shifts. Like if you, uh, as we did at the, the Nigeria Social Violence Research Project, if you catalog its lethality, its targets, how it's uh, 
attempted to attack those targets, its tactical profile has evolved and changed in response to the Nigerian state's um, counterterrorism and counterinsurgency strategies. Um, and so changes in Boko Haram's portfolio uh, or, or operational um, profile aren't necessarily signs of the group being on the decline. It's just a sign that they're changing and adapting. Um, And so that's been particularly frustrating, um, is that the government uh, is so eager to declare victory um, that they're not really looking at, at what it means to hold territory and to secure territory. Um, there's a really unfortunate habit, habit in which the Nigerian military and the vigilantes um, will clear an area of Boko Haram, but then they won't hold it. They won't stick around to make sure that it's secured, um, that people are safe to return and re- uh, begin their lives again. Um, so you get this kind of habit in which the Nigerian military clears an area and then retreats and then Boko Haram files back in. Um, and that's not a means of, of credibly um, or sustainably securing an area. Yeah, indeed. And it's, it, we see parallels of it across the world and, and not just in the African continent, but, but, but across the globe. Um, you conclude your book with, with a chapter entitled Nigeria at a Crossroads. Um, first, could, could you discuss how Nigeria is at a crossroads and how you see the country advancing over the coming decade or so? Um, and secondly, what can Nigeria's struggles and, and future prospects tell us about the, the wider struggles on the African continent? Sure. So sort of most immediately, um, Nigeria does have upcoming general elections. And I think looking at how the country manages those elections will give us an insight into how it will navigate um, its continued fight against Boko Haram um, and then what a post-conflict period would look like. Um, I believe it was about a week ago, the governor of Borno State, uh, Kashim Shatima, released a statement that now um, the Nigerian government is essentially trying to engage in a strategic Hamlet program in which they're going to funnel IDPs into a handful of urban areas and secure those. Um, And while I'm I'm certainly no expert in uh, Vietnam or counterinsurgency, counterterrorism practices throughout history, I don't think that strategic hamlets have a a ringing endorsement from a historical view. Um, So I I think the ways in which the 20, I believe it's 2019. uh, Let me double check that. Uh, So the ways in which the government handles the 2019 elections um, as well as sort of the ongoing humanitarian crisis will give us a clue about which way Nigeria will go at this crossroads. One of the biggest issues will be in securing um, government resources and the right to vote for displaced communities. Um, Nigeria has this system uh, called endogeneity. And so uh, you are, quote unquote, indigenous to a local government area, which in the United States is analogous to the the county level um, that either your parents or your grandparents were born in. 
and uh, you get kind of a certificate of indigeneity from that LGA, and that is what entitles you to certain government benefits. Um, you know, you vote according to the LGA that you're indigenous to, um, and a lot of people cannot find their certificate of indigeneity having been displaced. It's not necessarily what you reach for when you're fleeing for your life. Um, and so in the 2015 elections, the Nigerian government did set up um, in a number of IDP camps a way for the displaced to vote. Um, uh, but I'm not quite certain if they're setting up that infrastructure again in 2019. Um, and then what the longer term plan is for the displaced population, which you know, when you look at the patterns of displacement with regards to sub-Saharan African conflicts, despite the fact that uh, a majority of those surveyed amongst the displaced in uh, northeastern Nigeria would like to return uh, to their communities once it's secured, that's simply just not on the short or, in my opinion, medium um, time horizon. Um, and so it's how do you how do you care in a long term fashion for these displaced populations, um, particularly given the fact that the the institutions of Nigerian government provision are, are really not set up um, to deal with displaced populations or you know kind of the the mobile population um, that it's characterized by because issues with regards to indigeneity uh, pop up all over Nigeria. Um, and so uh, on your second point with regards to what other contexts can learn from the Nigerian experience, um, there was a really great, um, refugees international assessment of the displacement camps run for South Sudanese refugees in Northern Uganda. Um, and the authors of the report discussed how the adoption of safe from the start, um, best practices um, in the IDP camps, which are a set of practices that prioritize women's needs in IDP camps, had really made uh, the the lives of the displaced um, populations in northern Uganda um, a lot more sustainable, had made the communities a lot more resilient, had reduced the, um, the vulnerabilities of women and girls who were displaced. Um, and so certainly from a a positive standpoint in terms of things you should do, um, certainly at least looking at that portion of the way in which Northern Uganda has handled the influx of refugees from South Sudan is something I would advise. Um, you know, unfortunately a lot of what I have to say about what other locations could learn from Nigeria is really in the negative. It's often, uh, a what not to do. Um, so, you know, from even beginning before the crisis, um, the unsustainable levels of, um, violence, uh, violence and structural violence against women and girls, um, the low rates of literacy, education, access to government services that women and girls in Northeastern Nigeria, um, had access to all things to avoid. Um, throughout the course of the conflict, we've seen a Nigerian security sector um, often displaying just disregard for human rights, for gender issues, um, and for civilian protection um, best practices. And that, again, you know, in terms not only of empowering women, but just in terms of 
best practices for counterinsurgency and counterterrorism is something to be avoided. Um, and then with the management of the current humanitarian situation, with very few exceptions, we're seeing a situation in which the needs of women and girls are, are sort of shunted to the back. Um, and the legitimate and holistic security and safety of women and girls isn't really prioritized or necessarily considered. Um, and so I think all of these are sort of recipes for a, a prolonged conflict and a post-conflict society that's susceptible to relapse back into conflict, unfortunately. When you have such a, a crisis situation for such an extended period of time, it's it's difficult to see when, when the storm comes to an end and, and when things may actually return to normalcy, when normalcy seems nearly impossible in those situations as a whole. Right, precisely. Indeed. Well, well, fantastic. Well, well, Hillary, we've uh, we've taken up a good deal of your time, but uh, but before we go, uh, I was curious if you could tell us a bit about what you're working on now and what we could look forward to seeing from you in the future. Right. So I am in my first year um, at Yale, starting my PhD in political science. So I'm sketching out what I want my research agenda to be. Part of the reason I was a little bit scattered today is that I've just finished a slew of finals. Um, but I, I think that my next research project is really centering um, gender norms and conflict um, and hopefully working with South Sudanese refugees um, about the role that um, gender norms surrounding masculinity, um, femininity, uh, and potentially bride price interacted um, in the process of militia recruitment. And then how gender norms uh, and responsibilities change uh, among the displaced populations um, and in the, the post-conflict context more generally. And uh, what, what legacies do you think uh, from your, your previous work is going to be pulled into that research? So the, the bride price uh, dynamic is something that really, it was only in talking to women and girls in Nigeria um, that I realized the centrality of that to a lot of social life, particularly amongst uh, younger populations in Nigeria. Um, and then uh, I, I wrote with Valerie Hudson uh, a piece for international security on bride price and uh, participation in armed groups. Um drawing on both Nigeria and South Sudan, but just doing a desk review for South Sudan. Um, so I'm, I'm particularly curious now what marriage dynamics and gender norms look like in the, the aftermath of conflict um, and then amongst displaced populations. How, how does marriage change? How do notions of what makes a good man, what makes a good woman change? Um, uh, yeah, amongst the displaced uh, South Sudanese populations living uh, either in Ethiopia or Uganda. No, that that sounds like actually a, a, a fantastic project, and I'm looking forward to hearing more details as it comes together. And I, and I know our audience will look forward to reading it once uh, you, you get the dissertation done, and of course it'll become probably another fantastic book. Uh, from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> one, one would only hope. Well, well Hillary, th- thank you very much for this conversation. No, thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Thank you. Take care. <laughs>